It's good. It's good. Honestly, I don't want to let that moment fly by too fast. I, um, it's powerful. I don't know about you, but I, I believe that what we do here is not about me. Do you? Are you sure? All right. Not only is it not about me, it's not about you, right? It's, it's about the Lord. But I do believe with all my heart that when the people of God gather together, that the Spirit of God is, is present among us and that He doesn't just move or speak or prompt or urge or whatever you want to call it. He doesn't just do that when the dude comes up here and does whatever it is that the dude does, right? That, that God moves as we sing and God speaks as we're honoring him, and uh, I hope you heard that message. You are a child of the Almighty. Don't, don't, just, don't just go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I learned that when I was... Don't let, don't do that. You are loved by God. We will get around to my message, I promise. I read somewhere on Facebook this week that when God called you into ministry, he already factored in all your stupidity. It's like, thank you. Which just reminds me that oftentimes in what I do, that I have a tendency to think that I have to be all and do all, put things on my shoulders and... I am first and foremost a child of God. And you are as well. All the things you walk in with that you think you have to shoulder and you have to carry by yourself and you have to, you have to put on the image and put on the face and fake it till you make I'm pretty sure this is actually next week's message and I've just... I should go back to this week's. You don't want to miss next week. We are going to talk about... Uh, whether faking it till you make it is really the, uh, really the way to go in Christian life. And hint, <laughs> definitely doesn't work. So, of course, we're in a series called Soul Care, right? We're talking about the condition of our souls. And I'm trying to ask you every single week, how is your soul really? Really? We began with the idea of identity, right? That we talked about the cross. The cross is the proof. The cross is, is, is the way God loved us. It is, it is the means of God's love. It is, it is everything and more than you could ever imagine in terms of a God actually loving you. And the resurrection is proof that it's all real. And we said that our identity is defined by that, that I am a child of God, that I am loved by God. And I am absolutely convinced that a lot of our issues we wrestle with in this world happen because we forget that. A lot of the struggles that go inside, deep inside our souls happen because we forget that. And we followed that concept with the idea of grace. And we said that, that I, am, I am the beloved of God and I am, a, you know, I made up a word, like the graced of God, that I... I am a person who is graced by God and loved by God, and that is my identity. And you might remember, we began to use the image of an iceberg, and we talked about what happens below the surface and what happens above the surface. And you would know, I mean, just study the earth. Whatever happens below the surface impacts what happens above the surface, right? By the time the earthquake happens, by the time, you know, Mount St. Helens explodes, What's been going on below the surface has been going on for a long, long time. You don't just have to look at the big picture of that to see that. You look, at, look at a tree that's, that's dying on the outside and you're visibly noticing. I guarantee you it has something to do with what's happening in the core of the tree, what's happening in the root system of the tree. There's just this principle of life that what happens below the surface impacts what happens above the surface. So we've spent a lot of time the last few weeks talking about some soul attitudes, some core attitudes of the soul that are meant to change things below the surface, but they'll become noticeable above the surface. We've talked about joy. 
We've talked about gratitude, and today I want to talk about the third of that trio, joy, gratitude, and I'm going to add contentment to the mix, contentment. In fact, if you're taking notes today, and there's a lot of them, and everything's going to come in threes today, and I don't know why it worked that way, it just, it just sort of did. So there's a lot of little sets of threes in these notes. But the first blank you're going to fill in, our world is obsessed with happiness, but our faith focuses on joy, gratitude, and contentment. Contentment. Our world is obsessed with happiness. Uh, happiness is, is honestly, it's, it's a myth. It's a myth. The idea that somebody finds happiness, that they stumble into it, that, that they look into their happiness. Notice the word, the word happenings. And happiness both begin with hap, right? That they're connected. That happiness is a reflection of what's happening in our happenings. So when our happenings change, our happiness goes out the door. And that's why in our lives, as we go through different seasons, as some seasons are more difficult than others, that there is this struggle. It, it, it's, it, it's a myth that you can, just, you can just find happiness and then you're going to be there the rest of your life. It's a myth that if I just had more, if I could just fix this problem, if I could just, I mean, tell me there hasn't been a Christmas where you thought, if I could just get everything I wanted or give the kids everything I wanted to give them, that, that then it would all be okay. And that lasted 10 seconds. I was thinking they liked the box more than the gift. And, you know, that... It, it's, I guess the modern day word would be it's a unicorn, right? There's this idea that, right, obviously unicorns don't exist, but, but happiness is a, it's a unicorn. It's just we, we culturally think if I just had it all, then I would have happiness. I want to try to ruin that myth for you today. Sorry. No, not really. Because our world is obsessed with happiness, but faith focuses on a, a trio of attitudes that are far better, far better. Joy, which is not based on my happenings. Gratitude, which is not based solely on my happenings. Contentment, which doesn't at all have to do, in fact, if I'm looking to my happenings for contentment, I won't find it because contentment isn't found in the stuff. Contentment isn't found in the happenings. I've, I've used this little poem before, but it's too good not to use again. It says, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The allergies, the blooms, that, that's not in the poem, that's me. <laughs> the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. That hurts a little too much. I read somewhere that a, a mentor once taught that one of the biggest challenges of the Christian life is learning to receive the gifts that God has given in his sovereign freedom and generosity that he's chosen to give me these certain gifts to receive those gifts with gratitude rather than looking over my shoulder with envy and regret at the gifts he has chosen to give other people. You see how difficult that is? Right? Where's our focus? usually everywhere else. 
It reminds me of the connection between, you know, the, remember the big Ten Commandments? Right? The tenth one says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not covet his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There's no coveting to be involved. You could easily argue that the opposite that goes along with that, because in every one of the do nots, there's a do. With the every shall not, there's a shall. Right? It, 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 you shall not lie. Right, you shall be. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad one guy's got it. You know, it's it's right. It, it, in all the do nots, there is a do. For this one, it's the opposite of coveting, of of wanting what everybody else has, envying what everybody else has. Clearly, is this sense of contentment. And I know of no better passage in the Bible than this familiar one. I'm going to read. Um, in fact, I preached through it not long ago, so my apologies for it sounding redundant. But I think it is life-changing if we really let it speak to our hearts. It's found in Philippians chapter 4. It says, Paul writing, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last rejoice, choose joy. I choose joy greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, what's the secret? The secret's everybody's favorite Bible verse, or at least one of them. The secret is the one that says, I can slam dunk. Because I can do all, you know, I, I, I can do it all because of Christ who strengthens me. I can do whatever I want because that's not what this is getting at. I can slam dunk as long as we lower the goal, you know, the hoop. We get it down low enough and I got it. I got it. Up there where it normally is a space, I got no chance. What is the secret of being content in any and every situation, well-fed or hungry, plenty or want? What is it that Paul had to learn? You, do you ever have an image of your Bible people that you think they just kind of had it all figured out? Paul is telling us here he did not have it all figured out. He was in process. In fact, one of the coolest things we have about Paul in our Bibles, but, but you really have to read it deeply to sort of understand it, is, is we have a whole lot of writings of Paul that happened over decades, which means that when you line them up sequentially, you can see how his thinking changed over the years. I, I think I want to just mention that because some theologians make more of Paul than they do of Jesus. Paul is clearly admitting, I'm not the Savior. I had to learn this secret, I had to learn it. I'm going to suggest he's saying he had to learn it the hard way, same way you and I tend to have to learn it. Our parents could tell it to us till we're blue in the face. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Got to learn it my way. Got to learn it for myself. What is the secret? I can do all this. I can do all things. I can do all the circumstances through, through him. Who's him? Christ. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Through him who gives me strength. Right? So the world has this obsession with happenings that are going to lead to happiness. If I just had a bigger this, if I just had a newer that, if I just had my face look this or that or... You know, if I little in here, a little, little taller there, if the Bible 
doesn't focus on the world around us or the circumstances around us. Notice he said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The world is going to focus in the wrong place. Paul is recorrecting the internal sense inside of us to say, the focus is not out there. It's also not in here in the sense of like me. Like I went away and I meditated and I climbed a mountain and I mm, and I ummed and I'm connected with me. And, and I do think there is a place for meditation. I am not down on meditation. But when the meditation is focused solely on me as though I am the end-all be-all, that ends up proving equally empty. Paul is clearly saying, no, 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 no. No, you've got to learn this secret. It's, it's Jesus. Of course, we'll go, oh, yeah, well, duh. I learned that in Sunday school. I was five. Okay, glad I came to church today. The answer was Jesus. All right, boom, I'm good. Except are you? How's your soul? Is there something that you would call contentment inside of you? You say, I don't even know what contentment is. Let's keep going. By the way, these are not pie in the sky kind of thoughts. Paul was not sitting on a beach when he wrote this. This was not Paul off in, you know, Hawaii land or some Mediterranean beach with his feet kicked up going, living my best life now. Let me tell you, I can do it all. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. In fact, when he met the Philippians for the first time, that also came out of a prison experience. We know it because it's in the book of Acts. You go read it in Acts 16, I think. You go read it. Paul's in jail in Philippi. And it, he, he and Silas, if I remember the story right, they're in jail, they're in stocks, and they're in the middle of the night singing. And the stuff falls off, and they can just walk right out. And the jailer is going to kill himself. And they say to the jailer, no, 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 don't, don't. We're, we're still here. They were in jail singing. Maybe that's why Paul uses the word joy more in the book of Philippians than any other book he wrote. Because that's when he learned the lesson. That the focus is not outside of him it's in God's direction that our joy our gratitude our contentment our rejoicing all of it needs a deeper source a better source so I'm going to give you really quickly three clues that happiness isn't working and I think you can find hints of these all through this text but I'm just going to run through them very quick number one I try to fix internal battles with external solutions you know anybody who does that Internal battles, external solutions, right? If I can just change this, if I can just change that, if I can just drink this, if I can just numb that. We try to fix internal struggles with external solutions. Number two, I have, if I'm flank, frankly honest, no real perspective about what difficult really means. Because in the moments that I often call the most difficult in my life, and I'm not belittling them, but more times than not, I will admit I have lost some perspective because my focus becomes me. I would easily suggest that an experience in other parts of the world would easily remind us all that while our lives may be difficult, genuinely, seriously, there may be serious pain involved in what we're experiencing. There are people who know difficult far more personally than we do. And number three, I, I confuse my wants and my needs all the time. I'm hungry. What am I hungry for? Tacos. I think I'll have a taco for lunch. How about you? 
Actually, I think I am having something of that nature. I believe it's Qdoba for lunch today. But tacos. Do I need tacos only on Tuesdays? Needs, wants, needs, appetites. I mean, I need food, but I probably don't need it that bad. The reality is I need very little. I'm not saying this, Paul wrote, because I'm in need. I'm saying this because I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The very reason he wrote this letter was a thank you, right? Because the people in Philippi sent a gift to Paul while he was in prison. They heard he was in prison. They sent someone with the gift to help care for his needs. Think about that. Someone who will go into prison to care for somebody else. For a crime they're not under. There's joy all around in this little church in Philippi. And so I want you to just for a few moments think about your life personally, family, maybe your career or your finances, your friendships, your school, your retirement even. Is there, is there satisfaction there? Right, what, what was it the stone said? The rolling one? Yeah, I believe that was it, right? And I try, and I try, and I try. That's the song. I want to break contentment down for us. I want to give us a definition. I want to dig a little deeper. But I want to be clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we always have to be passive. I am not saying you're never allowed to, you know, explore alternatives or seek to change your circumstances. I am saying that seeking to change your circumstances won't fix what's going on inside. Does that make sense? If I just made a little more, if I just had a little bigger, if I just, if I just upgraded this aspect of my life, you can't upgrade yourself into happiness. So I wrote this really sort of uh, long-worded one thing, and I, maybe it'll stick and maybe it won't, I don't know. But I tried to be specific about this, and I think I got way too many C's in it, but I'm going to say it anyway, all right? So this is the one thing I'm trying to convince us of today. Changing circumstances is inevitable, but finding contentment through circumstantial change is not. It's inevitable that my circumstances will change. In fact, if you don't believe it, watch the weather. Right? It's that proverbial like, yeah, we have four seasons in Oregon. The one that happens from 6 to 10, the one that happens from 10 to 2, the one, you know, that we can have all four seasons in one day. Circumstances will change. That's inevitable. But you don't just stumble into contentment by changing your circumstances. It will never happen that way. You can't change your circumstances enough to find the myth of happiness. Changing circumstances won't create contentment. It, it will, or what we think is contentment, but it lasts about as long as a kid with a new toy at Christmas. I mean, I'm serious. I'm going to get in trouble for this. But go buy the bigger TV. They'll come out with a new bigger one next month. It never lasts. He is saying I had to learn the secret of contentment. Learning, of course, has a teacher... And learning has a classroom or a context or a laboratory. And for Paul, the learning, the context, the laboratory, the classroom was his circumstances when he was in need and when he had plenty. 
In fact, Paul would tell you, if I'm reading him rightly, that plenty can be more dangerous for you than need. I'll read you a verse in a minute that will tell you that. Twice he said, I had to learn it. He uses two different words for learning when he tells us this. Verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The word there is actually the verbal form of the word we would, it's very related to the word we would use for disciple. He said, I had to have this discipled into me. But don't misunderstand this. He's not saying he learned this because Peter sat him down and the two of them over coffee figured it out. He is saying this because in his following of Jesus, he had to learn to disconnect from all the external stuff and he had to learn from Christ how to find joy and contentment, satisfaction, enough in who Christ was for him. In a lot of ways, this word means to learn by experience. I think you could easily put the sort of modern colloquial, I had to learn it my way. I had to learn it the hard way on this. If you've ever raised kids, you know how this works. You teach them when they're three. You don't teach them when they're three. <laughs> right? You teach, they don't learn. Then there's a season where you teach, they learn. And then there comes this other magical season where you teach and they go, whatever. I had to learn this myself, Paul is saying. I had to learn this by experience. Then later, he uses a different word. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty, verse 12. I have learned the secret. Really, the, the more accurate translation there would be mystery. I have learned the mystery of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. The mystery, the secret, is that I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. I have learned this. When he uses the word contentment, he uses a very interesting word. It's a word that was used in the philosophy of his day to mean something different than he used it. In fact, he took the word that the Stoics would use, a word that meant sort of self-fulfilled, entirely self-sufficient. In fact, the word begins with auto, like, you know, and we, autoimmune disorder. Or, the word auto means um, self Right, So the very word has self built into it. He takes the word and he tweaks it. He, he, he uses the same word, but he redeems it. This is why, I mean, this has nothing to do with this, I suppose, but this is why I have no problem with celebrating Christmas at Christmas. You will always hear those people who say, but there was Druid ancient stuff happening, and there was this stuff happening, and the Christians, the Christians redeemed it. Redemption is a good thing. So the Stoics took this word that meant self-sufficiency, and they used it in very specific ways. The Stoics, and you know, I mean, Stoics were the philosophers. But we, we use the word today, say, oh man, you're very Stoic, means you've got no, right? There's no expression, there's no, there's no emotion. That's because that was their entire philosophy, the Stoics believed that the way to satisfaction was to eliminate all desire, no more desire. To eliminate all emotion, no more emotion. The Stoics believed that the way to go was to eliminate desire, eliminate emotion, and to eliminate feeling. That I want nothing, I care about nothing, and nothing matters to me. That's your way to happiness, folks. Paul took the word and said, Neh. this word contentment isn't self-sufficiency, it's Christ-sufficiency. 
I should keep going. I'm going to give us a definition, and, I, and instead of giving us one sentence, I'm going to give us three, and I, and I want to credit a couple of books for this. I stumbled across this book, The Power of Christian Contentment, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago. It's written by a modern guy who was taking a more ancient book and bringing that to a more modern publication. By ancient, I mean a book written in 1643 by Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote a work called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. His point being that, that you can find the rarest jewel in the world and contentment as a Christian is even more rare. And so he unfolds this definition that came out of this book from the 1600s. And I want to see if I can share a bit of it with you, and I have tweaked it slightly, but I think it makes sense in my mind. It's like a three-legged stool. I seriously thought, like, I need a three-legged stool on stage to use, and I looked around our building, and I could only find four-legged stools. But I didn't want to have a fourth leg, because then we'd have to be here longer. And So three-legged stool it is, I have no physical example. You know what a three-legged table looks like, right? right so we have a three-legged stool of contentment. Leg number one is a frame of mind. It is internal satisfaction, a frame of mind. There's a certain way of thinking that goes with contentment. Let's say it this way. I can prove to you that happiness is a unicorn, that it's a myth. Think of it this way. I want you to imagine you've just won the most extraordinary sweepstakes prize ever. I mean, like, Publishers Clearinghouse has nothing on this. And let's just say that part of what you get is an all-expense-paid trip anywhere in the world for as long as you want it to be. Sounds pretty happy, doesn't it? All expenses paid as long as I want. You'll stay at the most expensive five-store hotels. You'll eat the highest quality food. It's cooked by the best chefs in the world. You'll see the most spectacular scenery. You'll drive the most expensive cars. You'll wear a whole new wardrobe that is actually tailored just for you. The trip will have the best of everything. It will cater to every whim. You'll basically be James Bond without the spy stuff. But let's say that this sweepstakes had a catch. That you can have the experiences, but up front you have to agree to be continually discontent the entire time. That you have to agree up front to be unhappy the whole time. That you are offered everything the world would offer, but you're going to choose to be distinctly unsatisfied. My question for you is, would you take the trip anyway? No? You sure? People do all the time. It's called Hollywood. Lifestyles of the... Have you seen how often life falls apart for the rich and famous? Have you noticed that their marriages don't last any long? In fact, they last shorter. Right? They have everything you would want and a whole lot of what you would not want. Having it all does not mean Wanting the all that you have. It's a frame of mind. It's not based... Now, let me give you a different offer. Let's say that God himself were to offer you that you will go on some trip somewhere perhaps. That you will have pain and suffering. That life will have Doubts and struggles and hardships. But the promise is that he will always be there and that in him you would have joy. In him you would have super 
natural contentment. That in him you might be in prison, but you can still sing songs of joy. Would you take said trip? Leg number one is a frame of mind. It's internal satisfaction. But I don't mean internal to me. We'll get to that. Number two, the second leg, the second stool of contentment is a trust, a deep abiding trust in Christ's faithful work in my life. A deep abiding trust in Christ's faithful work in my life. That there is for the Christian a belief that Jesus is always working. That he has a way of accomplishing his ultimate ends in my life. And that I have a trust that God knows what he's doing. A trust in God's presence in me and around me. A trust in God's work in me and through me. A trust in God's providence in what he will allow in my life. And the third leg is a submissive way of life. When I wrote this part, I at first wrote an obedient way of life because I thought the word submissive might be the wrong image for you. It's a, it's a bad word, our culture would say. It's a biblical word, actually. And it doesn't mean what the, the world redeems words as well. Makes them their words. a submissive way of life. It's a willingness to say, you know what? Christ knows what he's doing. I'll follow him. Again, Brian, 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 Brian. You're saying that I have to be stuck in that job or I have to accept that I live in this house or that I will never, ever change. Like the garden I've got is the only garden I will ever have that, are you saying that we can't step out and try new things? Are you No, no, no. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm saying that trying all those new things will never provide the answer. Paul learned that he could handle anything, good or bad. Of course, the question when he says that living in plenty or living in want, which one is good and which one is bad? Because there is this proverb, right, that says, Lord, keep falsehood and lies from me and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? You ever see people do that? It's like the definition of America. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the mystery. I've learned the secret. Any and every situation, well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. There are downsides to both those lifestyles. Paul realized what most of us have never learned. That the rat race is not the point. That I don't want to be the rat. That the meaning of life is much deeper. And that when I have that meaning solved, that I am loved, that I am a child of God, the rest of it is far more irrelevant. So, how do I learn contentment right? Let me summarize. Number one, my soul needs to detach from my circumstances. The condition of my soul needs an unplugging. From my circumstances. I would also semi-suggest a couple of other ideas here. Unplugging from my media. And unplugging from my social media. I'm going to hit all generations here real quick. Okay? Unplugging from circumstances is pretty obvious. And I've been talking about it for 20 minutes. If you don't know what I'm talking about at this point, either I'm not doing my job or you're falling asleep. And we'll get the little ball out again. Right? Right? It... it, it I'm talking about this disconnect from my circumstances. It just has to happen. But I'm going to suggest two more particular circumstances. The disconnecting from media. I'm not saying you can never watch 
cable news. I'm not saying you never watch the news. I'm saying if all you digest in your life is cable news, either side, I don't care which, it will stir up in you a constant fear and a constant dissatisfaction. Listen to Fox all day long. Listen to MSNBC all day long. Listen to CNN all day long. I mean, they, they, they tell the same story like 4,000 times over and over if you've ever actually watched them all day long. But watch the same thing all day long with the biases built in all day long. You get an echo chamber in your head and your soul, and pretty soon you'll think it's the end of the world. There's no contentment there. Now, if that one doesn't get you, the next one will. I can watch my TikTok all day long, my Instagram all day long. I can watch this stuff all day long. All it will do is sow seeds that say, you're not enough. Your experiences are not enough. Now, again, is this, is this an evil tool to be shelved and never to be touched again? No, that's not what I'm saying. Am I saying you never watch the news? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if my daily diet is this thing, then this thing is what is discipling me. If my daily diet has a remote control that goes, then that thing is what is discipling me. I have to detach the condition of my soul daily from my circumstances, my media, my social media, because those things are predisposed to convince me that I am not enough, what I have. Just watch commercials. It's Christmas. You need one of these things with a big pretty bow. Never mind the $40,000 payment. Does this make sense, the disconnect? Now, there's going to be a reconnect. There's going to be an attachment, but it's not to this stuff. Number two, I wrote in my notes, steer clear of American idols. I don't mean the TV show. Is that even still on? I think it is. Tonight. I'll see. That shows you what I know. TV just proves there's nothing new under the sun. Like Survivor season 438 is still on somewhere, right? It, 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 Survivor American Idols. So it's all still. I wrote Steer Clear of American Idols, right? Paul wrote, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I've learned the mystery, the secret of being content in any and every situation, well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So what do you mean by American Idols? I wrote four or five of them here. I wrote the idol of consumption. That's actually what I was sort of getting at in my last point. But the idol of consumption, right? America is just sort of built, not just America, a lot of the world, a lot of the West is built on consume, consume, consume. I wrote the idol of now. You know how wired we are to have it all right now? To not have to work for it, to not have to wait on it. Now, what do I want? I want my best life, and I want it. I heard somewhere you got to earn that thing. The idol of ease. By ease, I mean easy. The idol of ease. Not E-E-E-E-E. E-A-S-E. The idol of comfort. We are particularly wired human creatures for comfort and ease. And we often return to whatever makes us feel that. I wrote in my notes the idol of comparison. You know that one, don't you? Oh, look, so-and-so's off on an island somewhere. That's sure pretty. Their life's better than mine. Of course, at that point, I'm comparing their imaged life to my real life. Because they also, when they return from said island, go, oh, look, Brian's off on living his best life now, and I'm stuck here. And the idol of comparison is social media is particularly good 
at killing our souls one little comparison at a time. And I wrote the idol of potential. The idol of potential. We tell our kids as we raise them that you can be anything you want to be. I like the sentiment, but I don't think it's really true. I don't mean we should be down on our kids when they're little. We want to inspire them. Vision is good. But a lot of us grow up thinking that the inner thing I want to be always means bigger is better. Back to comparison in a sense. Always means I got it. I get what I want. I. The idol of potential says... Well, you know, if you were really good at what you do, you'd have an extra zero at the end of the paycheck. If you were really good, you'd have an extra zero at the end of the bank balance. If you were really good, this doesn't just apply to people with your level of zeros and decimal point. Go to the next level up and the next level up. They all think the same thing. This is why I say it's a myth. It's a unicorn. The reality is contentment comes from having what I need and that leads me to that third idea. This has been the point the whole day, right? That roots produce fruits. So I need to develop deep roots in Jesus. Develop deep roots in Jesus. The lawn experts tell me that I should not water my yard every day. Have you heard this? If I water my yard every day, my roots stay shallow. So what do the roots have to go through? Struggle. Non-ease, dryness, difficulty, because that forces them to put down deeper growth into what really matters. It is those circumstances of life that provide the deep roots in Jesus, that he is sufficient, that he is my strength, that he is my security. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Roots produce fruits. I just need deeper roots in Jesus. Makes sense. It's the practicing it that's so hard. And that's the learning we have to do to put it into practice. That's the laboratory. And that'll be my prayer for you. We always end with two prayers at Harvest. The first is a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application of discipleship if you need jesus today you're watching online and you need jesus man he wants to give you more than you have ever dreamed or imagined and i don't mean stuff jesus loves you if you need jesus today maybe you'd receive him right here right now and pray like this dear jesus please forgive my sin i turn to you and i put my faith in you and I believe you died for my sins and you rose again. And since you're alive, please take over my life and be my God and make me yours. I give you all of me. And I thank you for giving all of you to me. Jesus, help me to be a rooted, <laughs> to find a life rooted in you. In Jesus' name. If that's you and you prayed to follow Jesus for the very first time, man, I'd love to know it. You can let me know on a communication card or a digital communication card. You can tell somebody who you're sitting with. You can, you can tell me a lot of different ways. I'll be outside uh, just after the service, of course, you can always email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. I don't know about you, but this one struck deep within my mind because I find that contentment is indeed that rare jewel, that, that unfound thing that we know so little about. And I need more of this. I need to drink more of this in my soul. And if that's you, would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, I admit that I often try to find happiness rooted in this world, but it's never enough.
So Jesus, I turn to you as well. And I ask you to be enough in my life. I trust you to be enough in my life. When I have plenty, help me to remember the difference between desired and required. And when I go through difficulty, help me to remember that you have me, that I am secure. So Jesus, detach my heart from my circumstances. Remind me daily to avoid American idols. And bind my heart deeply to you, Jesus. Deep roots. Deep roots. In Jesus' name. Amen. He really loves you. So do we. So we're going to sing one more song. We're not passing a basket these days. You guys pretty well know the routine. If you're watching online, we'd love for you to give. You can give online. We'd, you can give in the room. There's ways to do that if this touched you. Let's stand and let's worship as we conclude today. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to Have a great week.